Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24 is where we'll begin this part of our worship. Luke chapter 24. Good to see you this morning. We have so many visitors with us. We want you to know that we are glad that you're here. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Uh, We have a lot of new faces. We have some that are planning on starting school tomorrow and a lot of different levels of school. We've got some that are college students that are leaving home, and so we have some partially empty nests and things like that. Just a lot to be thinking about and praying for in our young people as they start a new school year, so be mindful of them. I uh, wanted to mention uh, last week I was out of town. I was holding a meeting with the Belt Road Church in Texarkana, and uh, we had a very good meeting, a good weekend. Uh, It was good to get to know some of them, and I appreciate Zach uh, doing the preaching here, and I am glad to be home And without further ado, I'm going to start preaching now. (laughs) Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Luke 24 and verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The text says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And when Luke uses the word scriptures here, he means the Old Testament. The books recognized to be from God in the Old Testament. But what makes a book scripture? How do we know that a book is scripture? We've been spending our year this year with the theme of revisiting the foundations, going back to fundamental principles. And so we've been talking for the last several months about the idea of the Bible and sort of the nitty-gritty of the Bible, about how the Bible is translated, about whether there are contradictions and errors in the Bible. And I want to take, for a few minutes this morning, a closer look at what we're going to call the canon of the Bible. Now, what is the canon? The canon is the list of books that belong in the Bible. These books that we have, currently 66 books, what makes these books canonical or biblical and not others? Why these books and not others? Why is the canon closed? So that if you or I were to write a really good book, we would never dream of just tacking it onto the back of the Bible and saying, well, it's the new next book, book 67, written by me. Why is it that these books are in there and not others? Well, before we jump into that, we need to ask the question, why does this matter? Why would we talk about this at all? Well, the canon matters because it is the heart of the Christian faith. If we know anything about Jesus or the apostles or about baptism or about Christian worship or about the Lord's Supper, it comes from the source book, which is the New Testament. If we're wrong about the Bible, particularly if there is more or less to the story than what we have, then it will affect everything we do. And kind of related to that is the fact that we in this congregation have set as a goal that we want to follow the New Testament. We want to be New Testament Christians. We want to do the things that are in the New Testament. So we need to know what's in the New Testament and what's not and why. But there is something else that I want to point out before we jump into this. And that is that most scholars, if you were to talk to scholars today, and by scholars I mean people who are not necessarily Christians but who study this for a living, what they would say is the reason the books we have are in the canon and others are not is just because that's who won. History gets written by the winners, and the winners like these books, and they didn't like other books. So all the other books, all the other strains of Christianity, the Gnostic Gospels and the different books that are left out of the Bible, they're only left out because some people didn't like them. 
And those are the ones who constructed the Bible. You might remember, I don't know, some here are probably too young to remember this, which makes me feel really old. The movie The Da Vinci Code and the book The Da Vinci Code, which had this ridiculous thriller plot about how Jesus and Mary Magdalene were actually married and there was something about the Holy Grail and all of that. But there was one scene where the, the professor figure in the book explains how the Catholic Church decided which books are in the Bible and which books are not at 325 in Nicaea. And they did it under pressure from Constantine who wanted to unify the empire under Christianity. And a lot of people, while we understand that that book is just a fiction book, a lot of people took that hook, line, and sinker. In fact, that idea still persists that the Catholic Church is the one that decided what books are in the canon and what books are not. And these are the books they liked and these are the books they didn't. So is that true? I want us to take a closer look for a few minutes this morning. First of all, I want to talk about how the Old Testament was formed. Let's just begin there. So in Luke 24, verse 44, what we read to begin with, Luke 24, 44, Jesus says that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus refers to the Old Testament then in three sections, the, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what's in other places called the writings. And those three divisions comprised the Old Testament as Jesus spoke about it and as we have it today. So the law contained the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets contained Joshua and Judges and Kings and Samuel and a number of the, all the minor prophets and a few of the major prophets, Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. The writings, though, that the last book that he refers to as the Psalms, contained all the wisdom literature as we now know it, as well as Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. That was the traditional order of the Jewish Bible. So when Jesus refers to the law of Moses, that first group, we need to talk a little bit about that. He means those first five books, which very early on were taken as authoritative by Jews. So early, in fact, that you see this statement right after Deuteronomy, you have Joshua. And in Joshua 1 and verse 7, He's told, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that my Mo Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Now, this is an important text, because what this says is very, very early on, not only was Moses' words remembered, Moses' words were written down, and they were kept in a book, the book of the law. And that it was written in it. And so Joshua is told, you study that book and you follow that book. The book is to be followed. Now I think that's important because the Jewish culture was an oral culture. And they put great stock in being able to repeat things verbatim. Yet even in Jewish culture, there is a need to write down. Because, I mean, you've read Genesis through Deuteronomy. You know that's a lot to remember. There are a lot of rules and a lot of laws, especially it's going to be used to govern the people. So, of course, they are told, write this down. And there is a veneration given to the Pentateuch, those first five books, very early after the death of Moses. So, a little later, this is when David speaks to Solomon, his son. He tells him, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do wherever you turn. 1 Kings 2 and verse 3. So... David says, even though David believed that God had spoken directly to him and through him, David does not say, Solomon, just listen to God and his voice and the things he's telling you. He says, Solomon, you need to listen to the things that are written in the law of Moses. Follow the book. 
So you see very early there is this sense that those five books are the guide for Israel. Now there is a group, let me move that forward, there is a group known as the Samaritans who only ever accepted those first five books. They do not believe there's anything else as a revelation from God after Deuteronomy. So there was a little bit of debate and dispute, although that happened later. But when we talk about the Law of Moses, that's that first five books. And then there are many other prophets and histories that are written throughout the course of the time of the Old Testament. They tell the story of the nation of Israel. They tell the story of certain prophets and their work, and sometimes, very often, their rejection. And over a time, a general consensus develops around the books of the Old Testament. Now, many of these books have to be written or put in a final form after the exile in Babylon, which is a kind of late date. We know that because, for example, a book like Chronicles that describes the destruction of Jerusalem and then begins the story of the return from exile has to have been written later than the events it describes. Or a book like Jeremiah or Ezekiel have similar implications about when they were written, later dates than other books. Or, for example, the book of Psalms contains some psalms in it that are written during the Babylonian captivity. Psalm 137 comes to mind. So when you have that, you have to say, well, these are at least partly put together into their final form after the exile and return from Babylon. You have an interesting statement. This is Daniel 9 and verse 2. Daniel 9, 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And I've underlined what I think I want us to, to notice in this, that Daniel is perceiving in the books. There are books that have been written and compiled, and Daniel has them in Babylon. And those books have Jeremiah's words in them. Jeremiah, who lived just a few years before Daniel... His words, remembered, copied, put into books, shipped to Babylon in some form so that Daniel can study those books and discover that Jeremiah did say that God was going to have that exile last for 70 years. So that's an important development because that shows that God's words are still being collected, put into books, and honored as if they are the words of God. God's words is not just when a prophet speaks for God, but also when a prophet writes those words down or when somebody records how God interacted with his nation. Those are also considered the word of God. So in its final form, the Hebrew Bible moved from Genesis to Chronicles. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. In fact, there's a statement that Jesus makes. It's in Luke 11, it's also in Matthew 23, where Jesus says, the blood of all the righteous dead from Abel to Zechariah will be brought on this generation. And if you study who Zechariah is, Zechariah is one who is murdered in 2 Chronicles 24. Abel is the first martyr in the Bible. Zechariah is the last martyr in the Bible. And so Jesus is saying all the blood of all the martyrs from beginning to end is going to come on this generation. So, having said all that about the development of the Old Testament, there were some disputes some rabbis particularly argued that some books didn't belong in the Old Testament. So rabbis questioned whether Ezekiel or Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Esther should be there for different reasons. Sometimes they had to do with uh, questions about the tone, like in Ecclesiastes. You can see how there would be questions because of the way Ecclesiastes is written and the trouble that it can sometimes cause when interpreted poorly. But 
all of the books as, the, as we have them were certainly known and generally accepted before the time of Jesus. And the basic approach on which a book was accepted in the Old Testament canon was, is it accepted by the people? Is it believed to be from God, inspired by God? And is it consistent with the law of Moses? So there is a consistency test, there is an acceptance test, and there is also the inspiration type test. Now there are also some books, and I'll just say this before I move on so I don't get a Q&A question about this, although I probably still will now that I mentioned it. There are books called the Apocrypha, and these are part, if you look at a Catholic Bible, they will have some extra books called the Apocrypha in there. These books were part of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, but they were not in the original Hebrew Bible. They're not part of the Jewish scriptures, but they were part of the Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures. Now, Jesus and the apostles never cite these books. They're rarely treated as inspired, even though early Christians knew about them and certainly read them. But most of those books are historical books or they are additions to other books. So you have historical books like the Maccabees books, and you have additions to other books like additions to Daniel or to Ezra or the prayer of Manasseh and that kind of thing. But those are books that we don't accept as part of the Old Testament because they weren't a part of the original Hebrew Bible. All right, so what do we learn from that? I, I just want to have the Old Testament picture in your head before we jump into the New Testament because I think we learned some things from this. First, we learned that this is not a miraculous process. We do not have the Old Testament that drops down out of heaven from God, fully bound in leather. Here it is. Here's all these books. Instead, it's a process that has fits and starts. It involves people. It involves people copying things. It involves people accepting and learning and then moving those things out as more and more accept them. It is gradual over time. That is, these texts have to be debated a little bit so that eventually they are fit together and that they should be studied and compiled and valued. Some books were not recognized. I talked about the Apocrypha. This is going to be a lot more common when we get into the New Testament process. But there were more books that were not a part of the Old Testament. In fact, some are referred to within the text of the Old Testament that we either no longer have or that were rejected for other reasons. But most of all, when you see Jesus talking about the Old Testament in its final form, you see Jesus approving of the whole product and thereby the process. And that's important because sometimes we have real trouble trusting people and their decisions about things that's important. But Jesus is comfortable saying the Old Testament as we have it is fine. That's the revelation from God. All the things in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he says, concerning me. All right, so now I want to ask the question, well, how was the New Testament formed? So let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> After the completion of the Old Testament, of course, Jesus comes to earth. Jesus is killed and raised the third day. Jesus ascends into heaven. And after Jesus' departure, the apostles begin to be spokesmen for Jesus. They go out speaking for Him. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they begin to be venerated because of their relationship with Jesus. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Acts 2 and 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles are valued. The apostles are viewed in a special way. 
Now, I think there are several reasons for that. One of those is that they are the leaders here in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 1. They are the guys left over. Because they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, they are valued. But I think particularly, if you are going to want to know about Jesus in this time, who better to ask? I mean, don't you wish sometimes that we could sit down with Peter just for a few minutes? I've got some questions for Peter. Like, what was this like, and what was he like, and what did he say this? What was his tone of voice when he said that to you? And so to ask them these questions, to listen to their teaching, that was a part of what happens after Jesus leaves. So it seems natural, doesn't it, that their words are going to be preserved after Jesus is gone, and that their messages are going to be written down, and their acts are going to be written down. So as time passes in the New Testament era, different documents begin to be written. So the story of Jesus begins to be written down so that people can read about it even when they don't have access to the apostles. These gospels are written with the claim that they have apostles for sources. Let me say that again. The gospels are written with the claim that they have apostles for sources. So you have Matthew is an apostle and John is an apostle. Mark is rumored from very early on that he has Peter as a source. And then you have Luke, who most people assume, because of his connection with Acts, has a Paul as a source. So Luke has Paul. And by the way, I think Luke talked to Mary too. Uh, but uh, they're all claiming that the apostles are the source for the Gospels. Then they write letters. And I want to show you a few of these passages. You know these passages, but it's important to say that the apostles began to write letters where they claim that same authority. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Now that is, a, that is an incredible claim, isn't it? We're claiming that what I'm writing to you is the word of God. And that is what the apostles claim. That's Paul's claim. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Galatians 1, 8, even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. John says, that which, we have, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. These are claims of the apostles. And it's vital to appreciate that sense of authority that comes from them having been with and communicated with Jesus and having been there to understand what's coming next. So please hear me when I say the link to the apostles is essential to understanding which books we have and which books we don't. We have books that are firmly linked to the apostles. And when people begin to make decisions about which book should be in the New Testament and which should not, they make that decision primarily on the idea of is this from an apostle or not? Is this somebody who was close to Jesus or not? So Christians begin to collect these books. Paul's letters very early on begin to be collected and read together. In fact, it seems like the New Testament encourages circulation of the letters among the churches. Colossians 4.16, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And the same happens in Revelation chapter 1, where this letter is intended to be circulated among the seven churches. It has a message for each church. So that idea of circulation and collection is beginning very early. I want to look in two passages with you. 1 Timothy chapter 5 is the first. 1 Timothy 5. This is important as we begin to see how the New Testament is gathered 
and viewed very early on. 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy 5 and verse 18, in the context of elders, he writes, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. If your version has quotations, it will have quotations around both of those statements. Now, the first of those statements is from Deuteronomy. But the second, the laborer deserves his wages, is from Jesus. It's actually quoted directly in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So, Paul says, the scripture says... And then he quotes Deuteronomy right next to Luke. And that's significant. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that Luke in its final form is already written and Paul is looking at it. But it does mean that Paul is saying what Jesus said is Scripture, just like Deuteronomy. And so these words are beginning to be collected and viewed as Scripture, just like the Old Testament, just like the Law of Moses. There is a reverence for the words of Jesus very early on. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. This is another instance where you see this collecting process beginning at the end of the New Testament era. 2 Peter 3 and verse 15. 2 Peter 3 and verse 15, it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, first of all, you'll notice that Peter is familiar with Paul's letters. That word letters is plural. It implies a collection. That somehow Paul's letters are being circulated and people are aware of them and familiar with them. He also says that people are misunderstanding and twisting Paul's letters which implies that they've been around a little while and people are trying to read into them what they want. Peter also, and this is important in verse 16, refers to them as scriptures. So you see, just as they would have viewed the Old Testament as scriptures, they're beginning to view the New Testament, including Paul's letters. Not just Jesus' words, but Paul's letters as scripture. So there is a process going on here. So what happens next? At the close of the New Testament, Well, within about 50 years of the closing of the New Testament, or at least the books that we have, these writings are known and circulated and cited among the people that are called sometimes the church fathers. It's hard to say exactly how they view them, whether we're talking about a canon and a formal New Testament yet, or they're just saying that they are authoritative. But you have, for example, the three outstanding church fathers of this era, Clement, and Polycarp and Ignatius, all clearly cite from books of the New Testament so that only Mark and 2nd and 3rd John, Jude and 2nd Peter are not clearly attested. Okay, so what I'm saying is that this early, you have 21 of the 27 New Testament books that are frequently cited by some of the most prominent authors that we just still have that early on. Now, there are other books that are being written in this same time. And this is interesting. Some of them are Gospels, just like the four Gospels that we have. Some of them are books of Acts, sort of like the book of Acts that we have. Some of them are epistles, like the epistles we have. And some of them I could only classify as fairy tales. Some of them are about Jesus as a boy. Some of them are about Mary and stuff that happened to Mary. And they're just sort of fanciful. 
But this era had a lot of literature. People were interested in learning more and thinking more about Jesus, and Christians read all of it. They were extremely aware of what was being written about Jesus. So the question then is, as all of these books are being promulgated, well, why were these books included and others excluded? I want to talk through this, and we'll begin to get a picture of how this all came to be. But the why seems to me to be the important question. Why were these books accepted and these books rejected? And that question is fascinating to me. It exposes tremendous diversity among scholars. The answer to that question really depends on who you talk to. You would think it's a historical question, right? That it was they did it because of this and not this. But some people just view that in a different way for their own reasons. See, the problem with canon is how do you decide which books to include and which to exclude? And the minute you begin to say it's because of this, you run into problems. So if you were to say, well, the reason is God said these are the books and here is his inspired table of contents. Here it is, these 27 books inspired. Well, then you say, well, how do you know that's inspired? You say, well, because of this. And then you say, well, how do you know that's inspired? How do you know? How do you know? You get into this endless circle of logic. So what many people do, many scholars, is to say that the canon is just a response to heresy and history goes to the winners. So if you've got Gnostic problems, well, then get rid of all the Gnostic books and just get the ones that argue against Gnosticism. And if you've got the Docetics, same thing. Whatever the problem is, you just take the books that argue against the problem. So there is a book by a man named Bart Ehrman, who is a famous scholar known for, you know, denigrating Christianity. And he wrote a book called Lost Christianities. And his whole point is, there were all these wonderful, beautiful strains of Christianity, and then they all get squelched out because history goes to the winners. Well, that's one view of why certain books were excluded and others were included. But to him, the canon is a historical accident. Then there is, for example, the Roman Catholic view that says, well, the reason these books are in the Bible is because the church decided the canon, and the church has that authority. But that's circular reasoning. Because Scripture, according to them, Scripture says the church is infallible, and the church says Scripture is infallible. And so back and forth we go, around and around we go. We just assert and just basically say because we say so. But the way I want to answer this question is just to say, what did they say back then about why certain books should be in the Bible and others should not? So about 170 A.D., there is a document that has been discovered that was written around that time that details a list of books that should be in the New Testament. And I want to read some portions of that. I'm going to put them on the board for you. It's called the Muratorian Fragment. It says, There is current also an epistle to the Laodiceans and another to the Alexandrians, both forged in Paul's name to further the heresy of Marcion, and several others which cannot be received into the Catholic Church, for it is not fitting that gall be mixed with honey. By the way, Catholic here means universal. That's why it's a lowercase c. I didn't do that, by the way. But... You see what he's arguing. There are some epistles going around, the Laodiceans and the Alexandrians, that are forged in Paul's name. They further the heresy of Marcion, and they cannot be received into the church. They shouldn't be read publicly 
For it is not fitting that gall be mixed with honey. You can't mix the bad with the good. And that's a bad thing. So the argument here is that their teaching doesn't agree with the rest of the New Testament. It doesn't agree with the Gospels, and the Marcionite heresy is different from what's in the rest of the New Testament, so we should reject those books. The, the fragment goes on. Moreover, the epistle of Jude, which is the epistle of Jude that we now have, and two of the above mentioned, or bearing the name of John, are counting, are used in the Catholic Church, and the book of wisdom written by the friends of Solomon in his honor. We receive only the apocalypses of John and Peter, though some of us are not willing that the latter be read in church. All right, so you have some interesting wrinkles here. There are some books that the writer of the Meritorian Fragment endorses that are not in our New Testament. So you have the book of Wisdom, or of Solomon, sometimes called Ecclesiasticus, and you also have the Apocalypse of Peter. And he says, we only receive certain of these. And, and this note, though, some of us are not willing that the latter be read in church. The Apocalypse of Peter, some people reject. So I want you to get this sense. There is vigorous debate going on in this time about which books belong and which books don't. And some people say that's a good one. Some people say no, can't be accepted. But the reason he says this shouldn't be accepted is because not everybody is okay with it. Okay? Some of us are not willing that the latter be read in church. The fragment goes on, but Hermas wrote the shepherd very recently in our times in the city of Rome while Bishop Pius, his brother, was occupying the Episcopal chair of the church of the city of Rome. And therefore, it ought indeed to be read, but it cannot be read publicly to people in the church, either among the prophets whose number is complete or among the apostles, for it is after their time. This is very interesting. This is a book called The Shepherd of Hermas, and it is an apocalyptic style work. And he says the reason why that is not accepted is because... He wrote it very recently in our times. In fact, it's almost as if he says, he says, Pius, his brother, was, was there in Rome. I know him. You know, this is too late. And he says it can't be read publicly to people in the church because it's not a prophet, it's not an apostle, it's after their time. Now, this is important. This is different from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, time wasn't as essential. When it was written wasn't as essential. But in the New Testament... It matters how closely related is someone to the apostles. Is he an apostle? And if it's written some 150 years later, well, that's not really the same. It's not a part of what the New Testament really is. That's the argument here. It's an argument from time that this should be rejected because of time. So, the author of the Muratorian Fragment argues that New Testament books need to be connected to the apostles... There needs to be a time element where it's close to the time of the apostles. There's the idea of orthodoxy or agreement with other things that have been written in the New Testament that are accepted. And then there's the idea of general acceptance and use. What, do everyone, what does everyone say about it? And all of those are here, and all of those in one way or another are present in the debates about which books belong. So there is one early Christian. I forgot to put his quote on the board here, so I'm just going to have to read it to you. An early Christian named Serapion comments on a document called the Gospel of Peter. Uh, it's not First and Second Peter. It's not any of the Gospels we have. It's not in our New Testament, but it's a book that was written in this era. He says, For we, brethren, received both Peter and the rest of the apostles as Christ himself, but those writings, which are falsely inscribed with their name, we as experienced persons reject, knowing that no such writings have been handed down to us. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, I accept Peter, but I don't accept everything that's written in Peter's name. Some things written that are purported to be by an apostle are not really apostolic. 
But on the other hand, just because a document did not have the name of an apostle on it doesn't mean it's wrong. Case in point, the one document we have that does not have the name of an apostle on it, the book of Hebrews, which caused considerable debate in the early church. This is what um, Origen says about Hebrews. He says, If I gave my opinion, I should say that the thoughts are those of the apostle, talking about Paul, but the style and composition belong to someone who remembered the apostle's teachings and wrote down at his leisure what had been said by his teacher. Therefore, if any church holds that this epistle is by Paul, let it be committed for this also, for it is not without reason that the men of old time have handed it down as Paul's, but who wrote the epistle in truth, God knows. So you see how Origen kind of splits the difference. He says, you know, it sounds really apostolic, so maybe it's somebody who knew Paul and wrote it down a little later, but because it sounds like Paul, but it's not Paul's style. But he is saying there are people that have handed it down as Paul's, and that weighs in his favor too. There is a man who does church history in the 300s named Eusebius. And Eusebius kind of gives the present status of the debate about the canon. He lists certain books that are accepted and certain books that are disputed and then certain books that are rejected. And that's very helpful for us because we can kind of see where the debate was by the 300s. But I want you to notice we've gotten 200 or so years after Jesus and we're still having arguments. We're still having people, some over here say this, some over here say this, and there's still debate. So some of the books that Eusebius lists as disputed, the book of Revelation. He says it's rejected by some, accepted by others. It is disputed because not enough people use it. Okay, so not everybody accepts it. It's disputed because it's difficult to interpret. Yeah. It's disputed because there are some questions about authorship. Some people were not sure John had written the Revelation. Hebrews... Not clearly written by Paul, so you have the question of is it connected to the apostles? That's a big one for Hebrews. And eventually Hebrews is accepted because it's written in the same era, because it is orthodox, and because most people generally accept and use it. James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. Widely circulated and used. But, but there were some questions. Some question whether 2nd and 3rd John were written by John the Apostle or by another figure named John the Elder. Some disputed the authorship of 2 Peter as really being by Peter. James was confirmed as John's brother, I mean as Jesus' brother, sorry, but disputed in some circles as the book of James was not written by James. Jude was disputed because it quotes from the book of Enoch. And you can see that. And Jerome, though, says because of its age and use, Jude becomes accepted. So what happened? You know, I, I said all these, these are disputes. So what happened? Well, we don't, it, it's, we don't have any history here. What happens is generally over time, as these debates continue and progress, people accept that these books, particularly the ones that are generally accepted and used and connected to the apostles and orthodox, that is, they agree, comprise the New Testament. And so these concerns slowly fade away in time. And then... And then you have, in 387, the official statement of the canon given by the Catholic Church. And I am arguing that that statement describes a consensus that is already formed. It's not a top-down type edict. There is no record of any discussion 
of the canon at 325 at Nicaea. Sorry, Da Vinci Code. It's not the way that really happened. I am arguing that what happened later only clarified the general consensus. So, I know that's a lot of information, and I know that it's almost 12 o'clock. I'm aware of all of this. What do we learn from this? We learn that we can benefit from the vigorous debate and diligence of our spiritual forebears. Now think about it. These people were serious and passionate about making sure they had the words of God. And they wanted to know. These are not people who just have some kind of secret agenda, who are trying to trip everybody up. These are not people who are trying to promote some heresy or silence somebody else. And we can benefit from them. We learn from this, that God can work in messy processes that involve people. What is very interesting and helpful to me is that in the Old Testament, that's exactly how it went, isn't it? We talked about that. It went the same way. It was about people and general consensus coming to believe that these words are from God, they agree with the law, they are accepted by everyone, this must be what God's will for us is. Remember, if God wants to communicate to His people and tell them about Jesus and His will... This is how it looked before. And I think we can confidently say this is how it looks in terms of Jesus. And I want to stress that, that we can be confident in the Bible as we have it. I'm sure that we have other questions about this. I'm sure because it's kind of in vogue in our time to doubt everybody's motives, no matter who they are, assume they have agendas and all of that, that it's hard for us to trust that God could use people in the ways he has in the past. And that we could be confident in something even though it came through people. But I don't think we win any points by ignoring the way God achieved what he has done. Instead, to me, it appears to glorify God all the more. If God can use a process like this to give us a revelation that gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So that we have everything that we need to be right with him. So, I know that there are probably more questions that that raises, but I appreciate your attention as we've gone through this, and I appreciate, I know that some of this is very technical, I appreciate it might not be everybody's cup of tea, but I appreciate your patience with that as we cover some things that are a little more technical about the Bible. Now, there might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to Jesus, and I don't want to leave this, uh, this time that we have and this opportunity to, uh, let me get that, there we go. I don't want to leave this opportunity where you don't have and are not urged to do what you know is right. If your heart is convicted by the gospel, and you're ready to make a change in your life, to become a Christian, turn away from sin, be buried with Him in baptism, begin a new life. Or if there's something that's in your life that you need to let your brothers and sisters know about and have us pray with you, if there's anything we can do to help you, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.